Dear friends, welcome on the Water TV. Today we have a very, very special guest, uh, Christopher Dunn. But before we introduce him, uh, let me quickly explain uh, that we are conducting these interviews with world-famous scientists and researchers in the context of a global international project, uh, Kaleidoscope Effects, which was launched in August 2020 by volunteers of Alatra International Public Movement. And the goal of this project is to bring back truth to people. This is very important because in the times of global cataclysms, uh, we need to understand our past to move forward. And we are trying to understand what is the purpose or maybe the purposes of uh, the pyramids and how can we reactivate this global pyramidal uh, complex all over the world. And we'll do it together with uh, Marek. Marek, I pass you the word. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you very much for your word. And um, uh, I would just like to follow up on uh, Losha's uh, words that uh, on uh, January 13th, we'll be conducting uh, a following uh, kaleidoscope of facts. And uh, this time it will be focused on the uh, topic of uh, signs, especially the sign Alatra. And uh, I would also like to introduce our today's co-host, which is Olga. Olga, the floor is yours. Uh, thank you so much, uh, Marek. Thank you so much, uh, Alexei. Uh, my name is Olga from Russia. And uh, today we are having uh, a guest with us, uh, Christopher Dunn from Illinois, from um, uh, America. And uh, uh, he's the engineer and he'll be talking about activation, how to activate the ancient uh, power plant. Uh, also uh, taking the chance, uh, Christopher uh, had a birthday uh, yesterday, so we would like to congratulate you with your birthday and um, wish you um, uh, whatever you would like to wish for yourself. And um, uh, maybe you can introduce yourself and uh, tell us uh, your professional background briefly and introduce you to our guests. Well, thank you very much, Olga, and uh, thank you, everybody, for inviting me to this conversation. Uh, <clears throat> my, uh, my background is uh, in engineering. It uh, began when I was a, a teenager in uh, Manchester, England. So I uh, served a, a, what they call a youth apprentice. And uh, taking the skills that I've, I learned through my apprenticeship, I emigrated to America in 1969. And so uh, <clears throat> it's been a while. Uh, and yesterday was my 75th birthday. So uh, hopefully <clears throat> my synapses are all going to be uh, firing full bore today as we continue forward. Uh, I've had a very wonderful uh, career in, in the United States. And one of the things that I, I learned earlier on is that um, creativity, and this is a subject that um, that you are very interested in, we'll probably discuss more later. Uh, I found that, um, that, that there was a freedom here that um, did not exist in the culture that I came from in terms of people who uh, had uh, belief in themselves and what they could accomplish. And uh, that kind of freedom and the, uh, 
and the spirit behind it uh, is what actually drove me to uh, to improve myself, improve my knowledge uh, through my career and advance through my career uh, through uh, engineering and through the uh, management ranks. Uh, I retired in 2013 and I was a human resource manager. So I had a very, uh, very varied background and, uh, and was benefited immensely. Uh, not just from what I was able to learn through my career, but also uh, financially uh, compensated for it. So <clears throat> now comfortably retired, I, uh, I turned back to a subject that I picked up in 1977 when uh, I, I started to study the Great Pyramid. And this came about after uh, coming across a book in a kind of a what they call a renegade bookstore. Some people call it renegade bookstore, other people may call it a new age bookstore. But they have uh, a, some unusual books written by non-conventional authors. And one of those authors was Peter Tompkins. And he wrote the book, The uh, Secrets of the Great Pyramid. So that's what started me off on my path and my passion for uh, the next 40 odd years was actually uh, reading that book and uh, becoming inspired by uh, the people who had contributed to it uh, by doing their own research in Egypt and, uh, and presenting uh, different points of view. Uh, but the common theme throughout the book was that they uh, essentially understood what the conventional viewpoint was uh, on the origins of the Great Pyramid and uh, its purpose. Uh, but they rejected it uh, because of um, a lack of evidence and uh, a lot of anomalous kind of features that really did not fit into that particular narrative. And as their arguments were laid out, I had to agree with their point of view that there, the Great Pyramid was something much more than, than a tomb. And and then during that period, I, I picked up a lot of other books. I mean, the, uh, uh, his uh, bibliography, the people he cited and introduced in his book, one of them being William Flinders Petrie, a, one of the earliest, or actually the first uh, British uh, Egyptologist. Uh, and he had published in 1883 a book called Pyramids and Temples of Giza. And, uh, and so this, uh, this gentleman was a, an architect, I mean, a uh, surveyor, and his father was an engineer. Uh, but he, he studied 10 years in Egypt and wrote uh, many, many different books, but he was very detailed, very meticulous. But one of the things that he did uh, notice was that, and wrote about was the uh, machinery that the ancient Egyptians had to have used to create some of their artifacts. And so that was very useful uh, to, my, to my studies. But the, the Great Pyramid was something that was, it seemed like there was a huge question mark sitting on top of it. Um, you know, what am I, what, how, what, is, what was my purpose? Um, and it seemed to me that the theories that were, were surfaced would uh, attempt to explain 
certain features of the Great Pyramid, uh, but other features of the Great Pyramid were not were not answered uh, in the presentation of those theories. And so my uh, uh, one day, as I was reading, a light, kind of a light bulb went up above my head, and uh, and it occurred to me that the Great Pyramid uh, must have functioned uh, as a power plant. The, 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 and in the logic, I mean, if you're looking at, you know, why would you think such a thing? Uh, the logic behind that for me was uh, why would uh, why would a civilization invest that much effort, uh, time, and resources into a project where, when they were not going to get any benefit out of it uh, in terms of uh, energy or you know some function. Uh, and yes, the argument can, could be that, well, uh, these revered leaders can uh, demand all kinds of resources to glorify themselves after death. And, you, you know, you have uh, mausoleums, you have the, uh, the Taj Mahal that was, that was crafted for uh, a, a leader's wife. And, the, um, and so, but that, those actually look like spaces where you would house a, a corpse or, you know, you have these magnificent cathedrals, they provided a benefit for society. But the pyramids uh, were totally anomalous, you know, they were very unusual and mysterious. And the design of them was, uh, was unique and uh, didn't really fit, you know, the, the concept of the idea that they were used for uh, a human habitation you know, either on a regular basis or just uh, at one time. And then um, associated with that and documented very well uh, is the, uh, the precision with which the Great Pyramid was built. The, uh, and the precision of the, uh, the Great Pyramid was something that uh, uh, resonated with me because uh, throughout my whole life, I have been associated with the, the creation of uh, precise or precision artifacts, uh, modern artifacts like jet engine uh, products and things of that nature. So I was aware. I, I was aware in, in the real world today what it means to actually create precision. And and so when I, I come across it in the Great Pyramid, that that uh, resonates with me. And that that is a part of the the, the whole kind of backstory, the state of mind that, that I reached during my research, that you had this precision. And on a scale of acres, we got 13, 13 acres of, of finely crafted limestone. And, uh, and you know, why would they do that? Uh, just, just for uh, any, any, any purpose back in a, what was supposed to be a prim primitive society. I mean, they, they wouldn't have the, the uh, even the concept of precision in, in primitive societies doesn't exist. Uh, it's only when you actually come into a society where they find that if uh, they get an idea on how something should be done, but it's, it can't be done without it being precise. And so then you have the introduction of, of uh, lenses and then you, you have the introduction of the printing industry that requires a certain amount of precision and then you come into the industrial re revolution where machines uh, were being invented 
uh, and they needed precision in order to operate. But uh, without that, without that need, it just takes much more time and effort um, to uh, to build precision into a product. So that was that was another aspect to it. So basically, you looked at the pyramid from the perspective, uh, like um, of, of like of engineering perspective. Yeah, just uh, to to understand that obviously it was not a tomb for for the pharaohs and uh, to see how it works uh, because the title of our today's conversation is how we can activate this beautiful power plant uh, how what we can do as today's uh, civilization to um, to make uh, the knowledge of the past uh, working and um, uh, we know that you prepared also your powerpoint presentation to explain to right. us your hypothesis and uh, maybe you can start uh, putting it, uh, I mean, sharing on the screen so we can uh, sure. uh, see it and uh, show it to our viewers. Yeah, we can do that. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much. So it's going to be a more illustrative example for, for us. Okay, so um, yeah, this is a view of the Giza Plateau. I don't think it needs any introduction, but yeah, there you go. Um, and you know, continuing on with my uh, my discussion about the genesis of the idea of the, the, the Great Pyramid being a power plant, um, it occurred to me that, uh, and during my studies, that it was it was not just a precise artifact, but it was a deliberately uh, designed and built artifact that had a unique relationship with the Earth. And, and that relationship was a harmonic relationship. It's uh, actually the by size and dimensions. It is, uh, it is in harmony with, with the earth. And, and so that was the, the origins of the concept that being connected to the planet and being uh, in harmony with the planet and, and the dimensions being uh, an integer or you know a, a harmonic of the earth's dimensions that uh, it was that relationship that drew energy out of the earth and it passed through the great pyramid and it was converted into uh, usable energy so the uh, <clears throat> that that overall concept uh, is one that um, I think can bring different benefits. It's not just the, the it's not just the energy that we can use to power our devices, uh, whatever they may be, but it's also other features associated with how that energy is um, is tapped into. And essentially, what it does, it draws the uh, seismic stresses out of the earth and uh, converts it to converts them to usable energy. What would that do? Um, it could actually uh, reduce the effects of earthquakes, if not eliminate them altogether, because instead of allowing the stresses in the earth's plates to build up until they reach a point where there is a, a shift, um, they would uh, dissipate over time. They would be drawn out of the plates over time, so that uh, so that they don't have a chance to uh, build up. Uh, until they become a very destructive force. And so 
uh, that's one thing. But the other thing is actually because of the how you connect to that energy, you have to do it uh, using harmonics and, and uh, frequency. That uh, and that those harmonics and frequency are um, uh, are actually the same as the Earth's, maybe at a, a much higher harmonic and frequency, but but still, you know, they uh, they're associated with the Earth energies. And so are humans associated with the Earth energies. And uh, we resonate to uh, certain frequencies too. Um, <clears throat> uh, that uh, that particular system would also benefit humans in that it would harmonize not just the planet, but the humans that live on it. And I know we, we, you know, we talk about the existence of all the other pyramids around the earth. And uh, then the, the concept uh, is, is raised that, well, perhaps they are, they are all uh, somehow uh, a part of a large grid of, uh, of oscillators that, um, uh, that are actually harmonizing the earth and, and the people on it. Um, I know it's kind of a, a unique idea. It almost seems impossible, but can you imagine, though, uh, a system so holistic that uh, once you once you uh, get it to run, uh, you draw you draw positive energy out of it in uh, different ways, and um, and you affect not just it's not just a uh, something that you you uh, you meter and sell to to the population is something that is freely uh, freely given. Um, that to me is a huge benefit, would be a huge benefit to society if we could do that. But it's, uh, it's not just, you know, the original concept of, well, uh, okay, if the pyramids are, are coupled oscillators and they're, they're resonating harmoni harmonically with the, um, the, the, uh, the question is then, okay, how do we, how do you prove that? Uh, and of course, with science, uh, the devil's always in the details, and uh, and so the objective for me was to um, explain all the details in inside the Great Pyramid uh, and find an explanation for them uh, within the uh, concept of uh, that machine uh, actually uh, creating. Uh, electro, uh, electromagnetic energy out of uh, mechanical energy. I call them uh, uh, geomechanical power plants. Just uh, and and that is just a you know just a, a term that I I assign to them. So within the Great Pyramid, we we see the evidence for uh, what I call a very advanced state of the art. And it's like you know when you look into uh, any society, um, they uh, generally their products describe the state of the art that they've reached. Um, and I'll give you an example. Like the state of the art today is much higher uh, and uh, <clears throat> more and has greater perfection than what it did a hundred years ago. And the reason for that is that when we actually manufacture things today we are using uh, machines and technologies that have evolved over the past 100 years. And the, the objective has been 
always to eliminate the variables in the manufacturing process. So when you uh, when you go to uh, uh, say an, an old machine back in the 1940s, um, that machine is reflective of the the abilities of the society at that time. And if you go have a, a machine that would do the same work today, the the worst or the most inferior uh, part of the, the, the object that it will produce, it has a higher level of quality than the best uh, quality that you would get off of one of these ancient machines. And this is, you know, the state of the art that we have compared to, compared to uh, 100 years ago. And even so, when you look at, you, you can relate to it yourself. Uh, if you look at the way cars were manufactured back in the 70s and the fit and finish and precision of those of the bodies were, was inferior is inferior compared to what we find today that's because of this application of continuous improvements and in invention uh, <clears throat> and uh, improving the state of the art and so when you come to when you understand that kind of history of how Precision is applied, how ideas are applied, and how products are made um, in, in our modern society. Um, and, and really, uh, the Industrial Revolution is, is less than 200 years. Uh, it started in like the 1870s in, in the north of England. And, the, uh, and today, you know, I mean, we have just over 100 years of development and you see where we are now and then you ha have to ask the question well what did the ancient egyptians have i mean the ancient egyptians in the modern in modern history supposedly lasted about three thousand years and and the interesting thing to that and i'll make a quick point here and anybody can jump in at any time but the point i would like to make is that when you study uh, the works of the ancient Egyptians, the people who created the pyramids, who created all this, the statuary and all the other different artifacts. Uh, you find a, 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 an amazing uh, precision and consistency between different artifacts. And you can see that they must have been using uh, advanced tools. But the, uh, that that uh, proposal is argued against by conventional academics uh, who will say that no, they were using uh, stone hammers and copper chisels and uh, you know very primitive simple instruments and and so the point I would like to make is understanding how our humans develop and work and apply themselves over a long period of time. You go back into you go back into ancient Egypt, and the story, the conventional story, is that the ancient Egyptians start, started in the in the first dynasty. The Great Pyramid was built in supposedly the fourth dynasty, but over uh, a period of not 150 years, 200 years, over a period of thousands of years, um, the Egyptians were did not improve their tools one bit because the artifacts that um, are explained away by the primitive tool method of, of uh, creating, creating products. 
uh, they, they still are used to create products that were supposedly created over a thousand years later. And, you know, that, that is kind of counterintuitive to uh, how humans actually actually work. So, um, but getting back to the, this uh, schematic, I, what I want to do is to actually go through uh, and explain each, each part of the interior. And I will introduce certain uh, known aspects uh, while I'm doing it. Take the, uh, <clears throat> the overall concept is that the Great Pyramid is a geomechanical power plant. Vibration energy uh, is drawn through the, uh, the pyramid and is converted to airborne sound in the Grand Gallery. And when it, then it focuses into the King's Chamber. The King's Chamber is created out of red granite, uh, or pink granite, uh, that was quarried in Aswan about 500 miles away. And so they, uh, the unique properties of the King's Chamber uh, are what actually uh, supports the idea that it was creating energy. And we'll talk about uh, the different aspects of that as we, get, as we go forward. Uh, with more detailed slides. But the, uh, the overall function of it is that you have the energy source. Uh, the, <clears throat> the source has to be primed. And so in the subterranean chamber, you have uh, activation of the, uh, of the bedrock and the Great Pyramid to cause it to resonate. And that, when it resonates, it couples with the earth and draws energy from it. Uh, there is the uh, Queen's Chamber, so-called Queen's Chamber, horizontal passage, and the associated shafts. You've got a, a southern shaft and northern shaft. And in the Queen's Chamber, they uh, were creating hydrogen. The hydrogen passed through the horizontal passage into the Grand Gallery and filled the interior, including the King's Chamber. Then the energy... Uh, the King's Chamber, which was vibrating uh, in harmony with the, the vibrations coming through the, through the pyramid and also through the Grand Gallery, uh, was uh, affected the, the hydrogen gas and drove it to a higher energy level. And so you have a, a, a hydrogen gas at a higher energy level. But the northern shaft has uh, unique dimensions and the dimensions of the northern shaft are, uh, re uh, resemble or uh, approximate what the dimensions you would need for a waveguide and the, fr the frequency of the, uh, the energy going through that or the wavelength of the, uh, of the, uh, the, the microwave is uh, uh, 8.309 um, and the shaft is 8.4 inches wide. So the 8.309 is the, um, the wavelength of uh, hydrogen, hydrogen uh, uh, microwave. So with the input for, through the northern shaft, it passes into the king's chamber. And as it crosses the king's chamber, it, uh, it collects or uh, builds up energy. 
that, that is there is what they call in uh, in the laser physics a population inversion where that an input signal will um, will actually draw or entrain energy it will uh, it will cause the electrons to drop down to ground state and as they drop down to ground state they release a packet of energy that's picked up and it and it's focused through the southern shaft to the outside. There is a, a little more to that. We can get into a little more later. And so uh, taking everything into, uh, into account, you have all the elements to actually create, uh, to draw energy, mechanical energy, and convert it to electrical, electromagnetic energy uh, and do it in a very sophisticated way. And the beauty of it is it's all based on harmony and frequencies. And uh, in effect, it, it is uh, actually what I consider to be a huge musical instrument with a very loud voice. <laughs> so let's look at some of the evidence. Is there any questions about what I have said so far? Are there any questions? Maybe just uh, to clarify one thing. So you said uh, like uh, this uh, uh, Kyob's pyramid <clears throat> was using uh, basically mechanical energy and was um, uh, transforming it into electromagnetic energy. So also mentioned uh, uh, that everything is in place and everything is supposed to be like working. So what exactly uh, is lacking or maybe uh, something is, uh, some equipment was removed uh, I mean, uh, from whole system to make it work. I mean, or we have everything in place. So what exactly yeah. needed to, you know, <laughs> to turn it on <laughs> this uh, massive power plant from your point of view? Well, uh, I can answer that question now or later, but now being as you've asked it now, I, I can answer it. Um, it would take uh, quite a lot of development. I mean, I, I think uh, what exists right now uh, actually suggests that certain other elements uh, existed or certain other structures existed, such as in the Grand Gallery um, that was uh, how they housed resonators. And so, you know, uh, when we when we talk about how their design, there are certain features within the, the uh, Grand Gallery that. Uh, predict that they were, uh, they fitted within the space and they reached to the ceiling, which was 28 feet high. And so, you know, there's 27 pairs, there's 27 of them uh, that, uh, that, that spanned, spanned the width of the gallery uh, up to, up to the, uh, the horizontal passage there. So, uh, you know, when you, when you look at uh, what is it going to take to to turn it on, uh, number one, I don't think we could actually, uh, not in my lifetime anyway, which is getting shorter, but the, <laughs> but the uh, I don't think we have the political or financial will uh, to actually refurbish the Great Pyramid that's in Egypt and uh, and turn it on. I think the probably the uh, the best approach would be to uh, build one in another location from scratch after we have uh, proved out the different concepts and, uh, and shown that 
that they work. And, and you know, this is, it's a very, very detailed uh, kind of uh, process that we're going through here because it's like a reverse engineering. And it, it, you're not just looking at, you know, the overall design, the schematic, and saying, yeah, well, this, this was here, this was here, this was here. It, it actually gets down to examining, you know, different substances and, and taking well, You can also uh, explain uh, for our viewers what it means reverse engineering. So for them, it's going to be clear. And uh, the second thing is that just uh, imagine if we find these 27 missing resonators uh, to put in the grand gallery. So uh, this is uh, maybe something else is missing or only these 27 uh, resonators from the no, grand gallery got lost? There's a, there's a quite a lot missing. And, uh, but as far as reverse engineering, uh, reverse engineering is when you take a, uh, an object or say a machine and you take it apart to, to try and understand how it, how it functions. And that happens all the time. I mean, uh, in industry, uh, one manufacturer would take a competitor's uh, machine, whether it be a car or, you know, some other device, they would take it into their shop and take it apart and then examine it to see if there's anything they, they could learn from it in order to compete. Uh, and, you know, or if they would improve on it. And this is how, you know, improvements have been made. It's been a, uh, a lust for profit, really. It's like, you know, if, you, if you're not uh, improving, if you're not um, making, making things better and faster. So, you know, m more, uh, more functionality at a cheaper price than you uh, you may as well close up because uh, you, you're eventually going to go out of business. Uh, so that's reverse engineering. It happens every day, uh, <clears throat> and this is a you know an example of reverse engineering where uh, you, you have you basically have a concept of how this machine functions, and so then you examine every little detail of it to see how it functions, and. And of course, you know, in any scientific study, you, you also have the, um, the potential to be wrong. I mean, any theory has to be, uh, be able to be proven or falsifiable. Uh, and, and so what you rely on is further evidence, such as, you know, new discoveries that may uh, either cause you to reject parts of your your understanding or theories, uh, or it may, you know, those new discoveries may support them, uh, or they may alter your, your theory in some way, whether it's uh, positively or negatively. But if it's still, you know, it's, it's, it's like, don't hold on to your ideas too closely because somebody's going to come along and change them eventually. And it's the same in, same in uh, research and science. So, um, you know, that, that is reverse engineering. The, um, the ability to recreate it depends on um, a lot of things. It depends on the political world, the financial support, and the talents and brains to be able to 
take this take this further. For instance, uh, acoustic modeling of the interior would be very, very beneficial. And I've been trying to get people interested in doing that. They are, they are interested in doing it. But the other aspect to the Great Pyramid is that uh, it's, in a, it's in a part of the world that is, uh, you know, in Egypt, they're very sensitive. And, and it is kind of more like a religious object than, than a... Um, than a, you know, a materialistic or machine kind of object is, is held very dearly to their hearts. It's a part of their history and their culture, and they believe it to be a tomb. And uh, also, it's an archaeological site. So the control of the Great Pyramid uh, is controlled by the um, Supreme Council of Antiquities, yeah. and that they are the ones that have the authority over it. Uh, until, you know, the, the, the uh, political forces in Egypt uh, begin to recognize that it may be something greater and they start to steer the, 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 uh, the bus, you may, uh, uh, you may say, is that they will steer it in a direction that will reveal, uh, reveal its true nature. And I think that's going on now. Uh, <clears throat> to a certain extent. I mean, there is definitely a grassroots movement in, in Egypt where young people are not, are not uh, listening to the, the old stories about the Great Pyramid. They're more interested in, uh, in you know, pe people like me and what I have to say about it. Uh, at least that's what I was told. And, and there seems to be some some truth to that because even you know some of the Egyptians that I've met um, over the years uh, are more interested in actually uh, explaining the Great Pyramid for, for what it is. Why? Why wouldn't they? You know, my second book, I, I devoted my second book, Lost Technologies of Ancient Egypt, to the Egyptians uh, because I saw that if it was up to Western universities. Uh, uh, that there was not going to be any any change of heart or change of mind. And, you know, the idea is that the ancient Egyptians were much more advanced than what they've been teaching us. Um, that wasn't going to change. And so, you know, I came to the realization that the Egyptians had to take control of their own history and rewrite their own history books. Because in the past, you know, the, uh, the invaders have written their history for them. And so uh, I, I, they see that that needs to change. There's a, a significant number of people who see that that has to change. But it takes a, uh, it takes a revolution, uh, not necessarily a violent revolution, but sometimes it's a, a generational revolution where, uh, <clears throat> you know, people exit uh, the planet and uh, new people with new ideas take their place and uh, then things can change. But, you know, you, you have, uh, always have your, uh, your nemesis, your threshold guardian that will, uh, will block you at every turn, especially when they're, you know, immersed in the, the, old, the old thinking. Um, 
We will try to be optimistic because uh, in the second part uh, of our um, uh, conversation, we'll be uh, also elaborating on about uh, creative society. And uh, right. this could be considered as uh, evolution, actually. But maybe you, we can uh, come to the next slide uh, because yeah. we know that you have prepared. Thank you. I'll just go quickly through this. I mean, the. Uh, mm -hmm. And, and I'm I'm throwing I'm I'm, I'm uh, illustrating the, the the Queen's Chamber now because th this is an example of uh, how new information can either support a, a theory or it can uh, call it into question or even uh, cause it to be eliminated uh, and taken out of consideration. So. My theory on the on the Queen's Chamber was that you had two chemicals coming into this chamber and mixing, one being a dilute hydrochloric acid solution, and then the other one a hydrated zinc solution. And uh, when the the pyramid was built, intentionally, these shafts uh, did not connect fully into that space. There was what they call a limestone left they call it a left they just left it there it was a five inch uh, five inches of solid limestone and it was um actually it was discovered the the shafts were discovered in uh, 1874 by a gentleman of the name wayman dixon and uh, he was poking around he saw a crack in the wall and poked a, a reed through it and it disappeared there was no resistance to it so he had his one of his workmen uh, chisel uh, the limestone away and, and discovered these shafts. Similarly, he went to the northern shaft and uh, did the same thing and, and uh, discovered that. So that is the uh, basically uh, the story up until recently. And uh, so there's always been a question about where the shafts went to because they there was no exit point discovered on the outside of the Great Pyramid. Uh, and so that was always a huge mystery. Also, the uh, interior of this chamber was uh, covered in salt up to about a, an inch thick. And, you know, there's been a lot of uh, speculation about the origins of that salt. Um, my my uh, theory was that it was because of it, the chemical reaction and uh, the uh, creation of the hydrogen gas that interacted with the limestone and, uh, and leached salts to the surface. Uh, <clears throat> so let's move on. But, you know, when we talk, well, let me finish up a little bit. When we talk about the, uh, the passage of these chemicals, the shafts were not open, uh, but perhaps there was a very small orifice and then uh, the uh, the chemicals were uh, came through at a metered metered rate. In other words, uh, only so much of uh, each chemical entered into this space uh, over a given time, and um, and that is important when we consider some of the other features of this shaft. Let me move on. Um, <clears throat> So we didn't know where the shaft went to until 1993 and a, a robotic engineer from Germany, Rudolf Gantenbrink, he built a robot to go up the southern shaft 
he was actually hired by the uh, the German mission uh, in Cairo to do some cleaning, to actually clean out the, the shafts in the king's chamber to provide be better ventilation for that space. And so while there, he, uh, he proposed the idea of exploring the southern shaft because like everybody else, he didn't know um, what the, uh, where the southern shaft ended. Nobody did. And so that was a, uh, a question that he wanted to answer. So he came back with uh, an upgrade to his robot. He called it Upuat II. And Upuat uh, is a term that means the opening, opener of the ways. Um, he cl the robot climbed up the shaft and they, they came across a blockage. Now remember that this, this shaft is only about eight inches square. So. You know, they call this Gantenbrink's door, uh, but for a door for what? Uh, it's not, they assumed that it was a door and they claimed that these pins that came through it uh, were actually used to lift it up for some reason as a part of the mechanism to lift it up. Um, I saw this documentary in 1993 and the, uh, and immediately it became apparent to me that this was a part of the machine and the, you know, the function of those pens was to uh, actually serve as what I call a fluid switch. So it's um, when the shaft was full of fluid, there would be a connection, there would be electron flow between, between the, the uh, what I call the electrodes, kind of like a car battery, if you will. But the uh, but there would be uh, electron flow, and and then when the fluid dropped, uh, that would that would uh, cut the circuit, and it would be a signal for more chemical to be pumped up to the the southern shaft to replenish it. And the reason for the reason why it is it was necessary to know exactly how how much chemical was in there is because. The flow rate into the into the queen's chamber depended on the uh, the head pressure. Uh, in other words, the the weight of the column of water or, or chemical would determine the amount the amount that uh, that was fed into the chamber. So a very interesting uh, uh, exploration by Rudolf Gantenbrink. And then you, we see areas in the in the uh, southern shaft that uh, are eroded. This this area right here uh, is deeply eroded on uh, image B uh, on the floor, and so that raises a lot of questions. And also some of the striations on the walls uh, of, of the shaft. Uh, you can see on uh, image A, you can see that the striations are at an angle. Well, that's because uh, the shaft is at an angle and uh, the, the robot, uh, the point of view of the robot that makes it appear that you're looking horizontally, but you're not, you're looking, uh, you're looking up. Um, in my book, I uh, illustrate uh, the, uh, illustrate the, the, the door, the Gantenbrink's door, so to speak to be about 3.64 inches with uh, electrodes coming in uh, and also uh, being 
directed down or connected to uh, the the means to uh, signal, you know, notify, uh, turn on a motor, or you know, allow another particular uh, action to occur that would uh, feed feed more chemicals into the shaft. This is all. Uh, this is not <clears throat> rocket science. It's all known. It's all known technologies. I mean, they they exist in industry today. Uh, then in uh, 2002, they did the uh, the exploration uh, with another robot, um, and that was broadcast on television. Uh, and the they used an ultrasonic thickness test uh, uh, to determine how thick the block was, uh, so they could drill a hole through it, and um, and recorded that thickness of three points. So it was uh, in the in the ballpark, I think. You know, I mean, as far as functionality, uh, if you were an engineer designing that, um, I think if you know you could design it three point two five or three three point six, I don't think it would make that much difference. So there is uh, there was the testing, and then you will see on the on the upper up the left image that the one of the pins had been uh, broken off in the process of applying that ultrasonic thickness test. I'm sorry, can I have a uh, maybe not a really smart question, but on the previous slide, I saw copper cables. If you can uh, go back yes, to the well, previous that, slide. You're talking about that one? Yeah, exactly. I can see copper yeah, cables, well, that, so I'm that just is... wondering. Uh, uh -huh. That was my uh, that was uh, my concept. It, it was not based on it wasn't it was not based on any known uh, features. It, it was basically saying, okay, these uh, those that were protruding were the only objects that we know of, and so uh, in the in the concept of the Giza power plant, uh, I added these features, the copper cables, and uh, in order to explain how uh, that that technology actually worked. Uh, so now it's now we're getting to the point where we're exploring the uh, the southern shaft and we're going to discover whether these copper cables exist, uh, if my theory was correct or if it might I need to revisit it. Uh, and but, Christopher, yeah. before we are coming to this, uh, your explanation, uh, maybe you can also, because in your book you are saying that two shafts that coming to the Queen's uh, chamber, they are not going actually through, this, uh, through the chamber itself, but three inches, I mean, they stop before uh, three inches. So maybe you have some explanation for this, and we just would like to uh, to apologize in advance why we'll be from time to time interrupting you because for us it's very important to figure out how it works. And uh, you have very detailed explanation in your book, the Giza Power Plant, and we also advise our viewers to have a look uh, at this book that uh, Christopher Dunn has published. Uh, it has very detailed uh, like explanation with all the uh, schemas uh, how it works, and that's why. The question is, why from a point of view, the three inches are left uh, and uh, are not actually, uh, the shafts are not going through 
the uh, Queen's Chamber. Yes, and uh, essentially that is uh, so that they could actually control the rate of flow of the uh, chemical that passes Ins through. That are coming inside. So these two shafts were right. used to bring inside the chemicals. Right. But right. why then these shafts are not going through? They are not reaching the chamber itself. How they can, I mean, bring the chemicals? Uh, they had holes that were drilled in them. So they, they have these um, openings, very, very small openings, which restrict the amount, the, the amount of chemicals that will come into, into the chamber. Otherwise, they would just flood flood the chamber uh, and uh, that's not what they uh, what they wanted they wanted just enough of each chemical to create the, the correct uh, volume of gas in order to sustain the so uh, it was the a way by the apparatus of the pyramid to control the amount of chemicals coming inside yes. the liquid chamber correct yes and that that was that this is their control and so, what you find, what you see at the uh, the upper end of the of the the, uh, the shaft, the Gantenbrink's door, and what you and what you see at the bottom, which is the uh, the the uh, very small hole rather than a large hole going through into the queen's chamber, uh, they actually work together, and you have uh, the fluid. Uh, passing through the uh, small hole into the queen's chamber and mixing with the chemical coming from the other the other shaft, and as that happens, the uh, level of the fluid uh, at uh, the Gantenbrink's door level, uh, the level of the fluid uh, drops until um, it it does not allow electrons to flow between the uh, the two electrodes, uh, signaling the need for more chemicals so that they can maintain a head pressure or a pressure on, on the lower part uh, to accurately meter uh, or feed uh, a chemical into, into that space. Does that, does that explain it sufficiently? Yep. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Okay. All right. So I'll move on to the next one. Um, the uh, that was this is, that, sorry, that this is a threatening picture how they are drilling. So this was the second experiment with a, a robot, or what actually they are doing? Yes, this the was the pyramid rover in September of two thousand two. Okay. Uh, and this is when they. Uh, Equipped the robot with a, a drill, and uh, sent it up to the up to the shaft up the shaft to the Gantenbrink's door, uh, and drilled a hole through it. And when they uh, drilled the hole through it, and they got to look inside, they had a uh, like a an orthoscopic camera uh, lens, and they. And so the image is kind of distorted and the, the light source is uh, highly focused. And so, you know, a lot of detail uh, is, is kind of washed out in, in that image. But 
uh, you know, the, the interesting thing was that I had I had made a prediction at that time that what they would find would be uh, the continuation of of the uh, the electrodes in the uh, uh, that are seen, you know, in, in on the front side of the door uh, and on the back side and going to another, you know, some other place, but. Uh, their equipment was not capable of uh, making any further discoveries than what you see right there. Uh, so I adjusted my uh, my drawing and uh, and included the 3.25 measured inches, and then I also uh, uh, corrected the. Uh, the shaft that may actually go to the source of the of the uh, maybe it's a you know like a cistern or some kind of a holding tank for the chemical uh, and then a, a, a very small shaft to be able to pump it up to uh, keep keep the uh, the shaft replenished. Interestingly, their robot they. Um, <clears throat> They did. They accomplished on, on, their, on their mission and exploration what Gantenbrink could not uh, accomplish with his robot. Um, Gantenbrink's robot gripped the floor and the ceiling, and that's how they climbed. That's how the robot climbed the shaft. Um, when he tried to ex and Gantenbrink tried to explore the northern shaft. But there was some uh, objects in, in his way. There was a, a, a long rod, and the long rod was jammed where the northern shaft uh, bent uh, and moved into a, moved up to a different into a different direction. Uh, and then the uh, the pyramid rover crew they decided that they would do it differently. They uh, they rotated their robot 90 degrees so that it would grip the walls rather than the floor and ceiling. And by gripping the walls, they rode over those uh, obstructions and made their way to the northern ship, the northern, uh, the northern block, the upper block. The interesting thing about, about this, uh, this discovery here, uh, which actually supports the uh, theory that I propose, in that it shows two what I call electrodes, and one of the electrodes uh, appears to be electroplated. It has a deposit on it. And <clears throat> uh, my interpretation of that is that uh, because the shaft held a, uh, a zinc, uh, hydrated zinc solution, that, uh, that if they were able to do a, uh, a test of that forensic analysis of that material. They uh, would probably. I would. I would. I would predict that they would find that it's a zinc coating. Um, and you know, these all these features. These are people who are working uh, in chemistry or work with batteries. You know, they 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 recognize they recognize the signs. Uh, that you see right here, even uh, you know somebody who you know somebody who has a battery in their car, they they will they will be able to see where one of the electrodes has a, a buildup that needs to be uh, brushed away.
Um, this is a shaft, uh, this is a very interesting feature on the outside that I thought that perhaps it had something to do with uh, the, the feeding of chemicals inside the pyramid. So uh, uh, with, with the uh, inclusion of, of uh, different shafts uh, through the pyramid to those, to those parts, uh, you, you could actually, you wouldn't have to go inside the pyramid to, in order to uh, feed chemicals to, into those shafts. You could do it from the outside. Uh, now, this is another exploration uh, in uh, 2000, May 2010, it was published in 2011, and they used what they call a Jedi robot. Uh, this robot had the ability to, it had like a camera that they could snake around and, and uh, explore, explore uh, the backside of, of Gantenbrick's store further. And uh, so this is what they they were able to discover when they uh, when they looked on the back side of the door, uh, they saw that the that the uh, electrodes uh, actually looped around and they seemed to enter or uh, disappear into an, a hole on the back side of the block. Uh, it's very interesting uh, design characteristic, I thought. And then you get again, you see. Uh, other features on this that uh, are interesting, where you see the the corrosion or the you know the buildup of material uh, on the electrode on the right. Uh, I mean, on the left, uh, as we are looking at as we are looking at it here. Uh, and so that is uh, that is a another indication of uh, of the the chemical uh, and electrical function of this particular feature of the Great Pyramid. And also, you know, if you look at the, the right electrode, uh, there seems to be some kind of a, what I would determine to be like an insulation material um, surrounding the, the pen that's coming through. Um, and then the, the robot that I was able to photograph the floor and the backside of, of the Gantenbrink store. And they found these unusual markings where you have this uh, red uh, ochre kind of marking here. And then the, uh, the, the features where, where you appear, seem to have like a stick man and, and, uh, and, and two uh, numbers or, you know, uh, glyphs that um, they, could not find any correlation to any known hieroglyph uh, and were quite puzzled uh, at their appearance. They assumed that they may be Mason's marked marks. Uh, I, uh, I had a different assumption. I assumed that they were electrical symbols and really they were kind of maintenance instructions on how, how uh, the uh, wiring actually worked of the of the Ganton Brick store. So I was really excited to see that because that was uh, that was like more more confirmation. And and so what I saw with this particular symbol was what we call I don't know what they call it in Russia, but we call them 
like a twisted pair where you have a central cable and then you've got two two leads that come out of it and you have you know a negative and positive so you have you have a cable here this is shown here and then uh, you twist it around and you've got you've got uh, your uh, negative and positive leads and then these I uh, interpreted to be uh, connectors that uh, <clears throat> were incorporated inside the uh, the limestone and just, based uh, on that I created this uh, uh, Christopher answer. maybe we can just come back to the previous slide uh, where you was uh, showing to us what the floor or the ceiling of that uh, uh, part of the shaft behind Gantenbring door so this is exactly is these uh, depictions are where on the floor on the floor yeah on the floor yes those are on the floor and and these are the backside of the limestone blockage or the uh, Gantenbrink so-called door. Uh, so that's the backside and uh, these are actually on the floor. And the, the red line would actually lead to the electrode on the left side of, that we're looking right, looking at right here. So that's identifying, I think, a polarity. Thank you so and much. We also have a co a comments on the, from our viewers on the web that say that these look like uh, anode and cathode and uh, hydrochloric acid and salt both made to extract monatomic gold or ormus. So uh, <laughs> I don't know. Uh, I, I'm happy to hear that they, they, they say that they're an anode and cathode because in my view, that's exactly what they are. And, uh, you know, whatever their creative imaginations can come up with, that's fine too. Uh, <clears throat> and so this, uh, in, in this image, I demonstrate how that those electrodes were wired and uh, that explain the, the markings on the floor. And uh, then I go to, uh, actually creating a model of the uh, Ganton Brink store with the electrodes and the connectors in it and demonstrate it, how it works. And I think this is a, uh, a video that I took, very short video. Uh, I had built a, a, short, a short section of the, the southern shaft, uh, <clears throat> but it has the same dimensions as uh, the, the southern shaft, except for the length of it. Uh, and there you have the electrodes coming through and circling around and uh, inserted into these holes on the back. Um, there was a popular show in, uh, in America, and I'm not sure if you're aware of it, this was called Ancient Aliens. And, uh, and I was asked to present on that one time and I, uh, I actually demonstrated uh, the concept uh, that I've just discussed where uh, fluid is, uh, fills, that fills that particular shaft, makes a connection with the uh, electrodes and, and then I demonstrate by releasing the fluid uh, how the electrodes will uh, cause a circuit 
when covered with the, the fluid and then uh, the circuit is open when the fluid falls. Um, and so based on that, I had another, uh, made another drawing on how they uh, actually may be connected to the outside. So the maintenance issues, it seems that the southern shaft would need a periodic maintenance because of the corrosive effects of the hydrochloric acid. And the, uh, <clears throat> and, uh, as you can see, uh, and compare these electrodes with those in the northern shaft, those in the southern shaft do seem to have um, been severely corroded over time. And the corrosion pattern is uh, consistent with what you would have if, uh, you know, the lower part of the uh, electrode is submerged longer in the in the fluid than the upper part of the electrode. And so you would have a tapering effect. Uh, another aspect to it is, and this is where I think it, it becomes very exciting in that there's still more to be discovered inside the Great Pyramid. And, and, and so uh, the other aspect to maintenance is you have to have access in order to uh, maintain that, that particular feature. And Pierre, Jean-Pierre Houdin, who uh, actually proposed an internal ramp theory and believed he had uh, actually detected uh, that that uh, ramp actually exists. Um, I can't disagree that there would be uh, internal ramps. There would have to be some means for maintenance workers to uh, reach uh, the back of the, at least the southern shaft, and make uh, routine repairs. And so that is basically the, the concept of the Great Pyramid. Uh, and the refresher of the original slide showing the different features. We're going to move on now. Uh, if, if there's any questions, please bring them up. And uh, if not, we can move on. Okay. Uh, just to, to clarify, so you said like you don't agree with the theory of uh, Pierre Houdin, yeah? That uh, or you agree with the theory of Pierre Houdin how the pyramid was? Um, I, well, I think his theory is uh, is has elements that are are believable because uh, you know when you when you talk about delivering delivering uh, stone to build a particular structure, if you have a pyramid like that, it would make sense to uh, use what has already been built uh, as a means to deliver uh, the product to a higher level. The only uh, issue that I take with it is that um, I don't think, I don't think uh, that's the way the pyramid was built. The, um, I don't think it was, it was built by sliding blocks along ramps, and uh, but that's just me, you know. I, I that's just my gut gut instinct. I, uh, I I do believe that they had the means to reduce the the effects of gravity, and and they, I mean, this is this is what allowed them to. Uh, build a, uh, a society that uh, was built of these magnificent 
huge monolithic artifacts, like a thousand ton statues and, uh, you know, 500,000, 1200 ton obelisks. I mean, all these huge elements. And even the, even the size of uh, the blocks that go, go into building the pyramids, I mean, they are huge. And, and, you know, to imagine all of this done in a very efficient way, uh, uh, by simply dragging these blocks across the, the desert floor does not make does not make sense to me. But that's you know that is yet to be decided in my view. Uh, you can uh, come up with all kinds of theories, and but I would ne I would never uh, propose something about how the how the pyramid was built and use uh, conventional. Uh, mechanics on it, you know, or known physics, because I do think that there is an area of physics uh, that uh, will yet yet to be discovered that will allow us to understand more about gravity and how to defeat it. Okay. If I may have a question. Um, yes. So, uh, taking into consideration that you, uh, what you have said that uh, pyramids have been used as a power plant. Do you have an idea how the uh, how the power uh, was transmitted at that time and whether they had a technology that could st store, even store the power? Um, you know, the <laughs> that is a very good question. And it's, um, and it's a question that uh, is really, it has no, clear answer at this time. Uh, and, and it's really one that has been uh, used to argue against the concept of the pyramid being a power plant, because we don't find existing uh, and under the desert floor, uh, you know, these uh, trash heaps that have uh, toaster ovens or microwave ovens or, you know, other uh, objects that would require electricity to power. Uh, those things uh, have not been found. And so then the question is, well, you know, uh, we don't see this in the archeological records. Uh, the only thing we have is, you know, the Great Pyramid. And, and to that, uh, the only evidence, I only, in my book, I, I take it as far as the exit point on the Southern Shaft and I projected out into space. And so, you know, I mean, as far as tapping into it and what we do with it, um, uh, that's you know, limited only by people's imaginations. And, you know, uh, you can, uh, there, are, there are proposals where these energy rich countries, you know, that have uh, a lot of geothermal energy, like Iceland, they have a lot of geothermal energy and there's, there was a proposal that they could tap into that energy, but they they didn't have a, a need to use it all, but they could actually uh, convert it into microwaves and uh, use a relay satellite and uh, beam it to another part of the planet that could actually use that energy, uh, sell it to them. Uh, I, I don't think that has ever actually come come to fruition or come to pass yet, but that was one of the ideas that was floated. 
And so um, I, it's not unreasonable to think that. Oh, I mean, they're talking now that uh, even these um, these spaceships uh, that are going to space, that they are, the energy is a beam through the spaceships from Earth so that they can reduce their payload to escape Earth's orbit. And uh, <clears throat> so, you know, these ideas are, are, are floating around there and, um, and taken seriously. I mean, they may not, they may not be adopted or they may not be able to find, have, find the funding to, uh, to put them uh, into practice, but they're, they're certainly technically possible. Okay. Um, uh, so, as we uh, go into and through the great the great pyramid, and we, we talked earlier about the, the the function of the grand gallery. The grand gallery is a uh, is an acoustic marvel. I mean, it's uh, it has uh, the features of uh, like a concert hall, really. Um, and and my proposal was that the uh, that it contained resonators, and these resonators were um, tuned to certain frequencies that responded to the vibrations uh, coming through the pyramid, and then that was converted to airborne sound and focused into the king's chamber, causing it to resonate too. Um, <clears throat> the supporting that is the the observations from uh, different researchers who have done acoustic tests within the within that space, and they found that sound that is generated in the uh, the grand gallery will uh, uh, focus within through the horizontal passage into the king's chamber and resonate in the king's chamber. Uh, Paul Horn, who was a uh, he played the flute, he met, created a record called Inside the Great Pyramid. And he noted that in his booklet that accompanied his LP album, uh, he said that the, uh, the, sound, the sound within that space was flat, but it was resonating behind him in the, great, into, in the, the king's chamber. So um, when we look at the grand gallery, there are features that seem to indicate that there was something installed there. Uh, <clears throat> and some of the features seem to uh, support the idea that you could affix these structures within that space using slots that were in the ramp. Uh, there was 27 pair of them, and then there was a slot that goes the length of the uh, the length of the gallery. And uh, so you could bring in a, a bank, a resonator bank, uh, drop it into the slot, uh, align align it so that the pinholes aligned with the, with the groove that went the length of it and then just shoot a pin into that groove to hold it in position and it won't move. Uh, <clears throat> so that's that was my idea for the uh, for the grand gallery. Now the as far as the tuning fork type vibrate, vibrate the, uh, in consul consultation with uh, a, a good, uh, uh, really, really brilliant physicist who had read my book and contacted me, and he was uh, quite a, an impressive guy in his own right. But uh, he, he thought that the, uh, 
Helmholtz resonators, resonators were not uh, used in the in the Grand Gallery, but the the King's Chamber itself was a Helmholtz resonator. So you know the distinction between an open resonator and a Helmholtz resonator. Uh, uh, was uh, made a little clearer to me, and I'll be updating uh, that part in my next book. It's great when you have people who uh, come to you and tell you, well, you know, you, um, you, you're not quite correct on that, and, uh, uh, but if you could change it, then that would, that would uh, work a little better. Now we get to a part that I think uh, <clears throat> Olga, you were interested in. And that was the uh, the uh, the theory that there was an explosion uh, in the the king's chamber, and I introduced that idea in my book, uh, and it was really based on when I wrote the book. It was based on the uh, the features in the grand gallery. I mean, in the uh, in the king's chamber where the walls were expanded over an inch and uh, it, it was shown that the there had been a disturbance within uh, within the king's chamber and the granite beams above the king's chamber had cracked so as we are going you know as we're reaching the top of the grand gallery this photograph was taken i think around 1995 or something like that uh, and as you can see, uh, there's a lot of dirt and dust all over the place. Uh, now, in, I was back again in 2001, and I took this photograph. And you can see that uh, this is the, the ceiling. It's showing the ceiling and the walls of the Grand Gallery. And on the ceiling, you see these uh, scorch marks that uh, when they cleaned the inside, they could not evidently remove the scorch marks. Now those are interesting in, the, in that the, uh, when you talk about how the ancient Egyptians were able to decorate their tombs without uh, leaving you know, any uh, smoke or smudge from, from their, their torches. Uh, and then you look in, in to this area, and you see these. Th this is not just simple smudge. This is uh, this is a, a high heat, and and so when you look at the pattern and uh, location of these scorch marks, uh, and you trace them down, you they are actually are, are over the slots on the uh, on the on the uh, the ramp in the Grand Gallery. So the resonators, I'm uh, not sure who, what material they were made out of, but whatever happened in the King's Chamber also affected the uh, Grand Gallery and the, uh, the resonators that were contained within the Grand Gallery. And you see the, <clears throat> the effects of the, them burning up on the ceiling. Just to make sure that uh, you're supporting the theory that it was um, explosion in uh, the King's Chamber, because uh, some of the studies are saying that it was by accident the earthquake, and that's why uh, this 
the people have to uh, who was taking care of the pyramids have to to repair these beams but your position is that it was an explosion right yes and and really the um, i mean even without this evidence here um, <clears throat> you don't have any evidence in the lower parts of the great pyramid that uh, that are, are similar in in their in their destruction. So uh, you have a perfectly crafted uh, queen's chamber. Uh, the the passageway going down to the grand the uh, the subterranean chamber over 150 feet of the constructed portion of that of that passageway is within. Uh, 20 thousandths of an inch or the thickness of a thumbnail of being absolutely straight. Uh, no disturbance whatsoever. Um, in the Queen's Chamber, you look at the fitting of the blocks, the limestone blocks in the in the Queen's Chamber, and they're perfectly fitted, perfectly aligned. You can't even uh, put a credit card between the joints. So you have uh, this extraordinary stable precision in the lower part of the uh, of the great pyramid and then just in the uh, the king's chamber you have the evidence of a, a disturbance that um, does not collapse the walls or cause the walls to collapse inward but it pushes them out and and so you know I you I, I question the uh, the earthquake theory um, the other part of that is, is that uh, when you're talking about this system and you're talking about a very volatile gas like hydrogen uh, and, and you can see that maybe something happened that caused an explosion with the gas and that's what, and that's what caused all, the, all this uh, destruction. And Related to that, I, I would introduce the idea of an event that actually, you know, caused massive destruction throughout throughout the planet. Um, you know, a natural catastrophe that periodically visits our our, our planet, a uh, comet strike, or you know, something of that nature that would cause huge Earth disturbances. And considering that, you know, we are like a um, a closed loop, we, we, uh, you know, the the Earth itself has known quantities uh, uh, that uh, we that we work with. Like, and if you are designing a power plant to maximize the uh, the feedback from the Earth of mechanical energy, uh, <clears throat> you are working with a known quantity of energy. So that's how you design your system for the known quantity. And, and then also you, when you, if you introduce a massive amount of, of energy all at once, then you could destroy the system. Uh, it, it would not be able to uh, uh, attenuate or dissipate the energy fast enough before it would actually shake apart and become, you know, and destroy itself. This is the this is the nature of um, oscillators, actually.
whether it's a laser oscillator or any other kind of oscillator. Like lasers, I mean, those are, those have to be cooled with water. And if you're working with a solid state laser and uh, the, the water supply that cools, cools the rod um, uh, actually uh, disappears or it malfunctions, then that rod will, will dis eventually destroy itself through heat. Uh, because it can't get rid of the heat fast enough. Does that answer your question? Yes, certainly. <laughs> Too much, huh? <laughs> yeah, it's it's good because you know to have a, a real understanding of what was going on in such a detailed way. We really appreciate uh, this opportunity of having this um, yeah. detailed uh, detailed lecture. I would say. <laughs> Well, the other the other uh, the other aspect to it is the uh, you know in the in the the king's chamber not only not only were the walls expanded, but um, the coffer, uh, presumably all the granite that that came that came down to build the the king's chamber was came from Aswan, which is a pink granite. Uh, the granite in the the coffer uh, or as some people call it, sarcophagus, um, was made out of a chocolate brown, uh, or was it made out of a chocolate brown? Um, the uh, it would have been cooked uh, at the time that that, that explosion happened, and, and so would that have affected the color of the granite? Normally, if you cook something too much, you uh, you do affect the color of it. I know because I I've burned a few dishes in my time. Okay, and these are some of the marks uh, on the uh, gallery wall that I just showed you. So then we we'll have an overview of uh, what was going on uh, from the point of view looking down on the uh, on the king's chamber. Uh, acoustic energy and hydrogen input from the Grand Gallery uh, goes through what I call an acoustic filter, and that was uh, contained within the the uh, antechamber uh, leading into the, the King's Chamber. And that would uh, filter out any extraneous uh, frequencies and allow a pure signal to enter the King's Chamber and resonate there. The interest, some of the interesting features about the uh, the king's chamber is the uh, the dimensions, which uh, I'm going to be able to uh, flesh out a little in more detail in my next book. But uh, essentially, uh, the quarter wave uh, uh, concept, uh, where that the amplitude of a uh, of a wave, a power. Uh, the amplitude or the wave height uh, um, appear at a quarter of the distance of the resonator. So you look at the uh, dimensions and the positioning of the shafts in the King's Chamber of the Great Pyramid, and they are one quarter of the, the length of the of the, uh, of the chamber. And there's a lot more to it than that too. I've actually teamed up with a, uh, with a, a sound engineer, and uh, we have uh, been to Egypt twice now doing further studies and so his work and his discoveries and findings uh, will 
uh, feature in, in my next book. The, uh, uh, in my book, uh, I had actually positioned the, the copper uh, between the shafts because I thought, thought that perhaps it had something to do with uh, modifying, uh, or modifying the, the signal or at least uh, um, being able to refocus it as it came through the, the chamber. That, that has also, I think, been modified. And so my next book, I will talk about the, um, the cavity being a, um, a resonator within a resonator. And it has a purpose to actually uh, uh, draw, draw off the, the much higher frequencies and to maintain a, a, a power. It's almost like a, a, an acoustic engine. So it would function similarly to that an acoustic engine. Um, <clears throat> now, so we have the another interesting thing, and more information has come my way is the uh, the the granite itself and how it functions uh, within the concept of the the power the power plant. And originally, I had uh, discussed the piezoelectric effect of uh, quartz crystal. And uh, from the books that I had sourced and read, uh, they claim that the uh, quartz crystal comprised 55% of the granite. Um, a very, uh, very qualified geologist that uh, accompanied a tour that I was leading in 2018 and became a member of the team uh, advised me that that's not necessarily correct, that um, he thought that the composition of uh, quartz in the, in the granite was only about 20%. So <clears throat> that has to be uh, accommodated and, uh, and corrected. But at the same time, information came from a researcher in uh, NASA, who was a uh, geophysicist, and uh, and so his work has been uh, ongoing since 1997, I think. And it's focused on uh, studying earthquake lights and uh, how they are created and if they could be used to predict um, when a, an earthquake may happen. And so that's all very interesting work. And he, he actually, uh, did a study of different rocks and materials and, uh, and how they react to uh, uh, pressures, uh, such as, you know, like you would take a piece of granite and fixture it and hold, hold it uh, and hammer it, you know, with a rubber mallet or something like that. What kind of signal do you get from it? And, uh, and what are the effects of that signal? And what he has found is that it, you can actually ionize the air around a block of granite just by stressing it, and it doesn't take that much. So that information is uh, also of great interest to me. Uh, Christopher, can, can I just uh, quickly read a couple of questions from uh, the audience? Yes. They ask if uh, the um, pyramid emits specific frequencies and uh, if uh, yes, then which frequencies? And uh, also, 
if they do tap into the Schumann resonance uh, frequency range? Yes, um, that's that's a, an interesting, very interesting question. There's been a lot of discussion about the Schumann resonance. resonance. Um, the uh, <clears throat> the frequencies in inside the the King's Chamber they were actually uh, uh, detected by Tom Danley, who was a uh, a NASA acoustics engineer, and did studies there in I think 1995. Um, as part of what they called the, the Shore Expedition. And uh, Tom Danley um, uh, detected that in the King's Chamber, they had, uh, they had a frequencies that approximated an F-sharp chord. And so, you know, the, uh, the frequencies there were, uh, um, they were subsonic. I mean, they were like between two and nine hertz, he reported. Uh, so they're very low frequencies. And uh, and then, you know, he did not speak to the Schumann resonance because um, the Schumann resonance is a function of the, the atmosphere, the tension of the atmosphere and and uh, the distance is a function of the distance between the Earth and the ionosphere. And so you have, you know, two different kinds of energies. So I, I don't really speak to the Schumann resonance in my book. Um, I, I would, I mean, if there was a connection, and there may be that I just don't see, um, then I would, you know, definitely uh, include it. Um, and maybe I'm, I'm just missing something, but, you know, I think for the evidence that we do have, and, you know, we're talking the Schumann resonances are electromagnetic frequencies, and these are mechanical frequencies, so, but certainly, uh, uh, Schumann resonance is what, 7 to 8 hertz? Uh, 7.83, yes. Yep. And so, uh, it's within that range that we find inside inside the uh, the king's chamber but even that that i mean isn't doesn't that make sense though because when we look at our entire system and uh how how the earth functions and how and its relationship with uh, the other heavenly bodies you know we, you talk about the uh, the music of the spheres right and, um, and how everything is connected why wouldn't why wouldn't you have that kind of uh, that kind of relationship, whether it's electromagnetic or, or mechanical, uh, because one feeds into one can feed into the other, correct? They interact together. Uh, the other the other part is also that I propose in the in my book that uh, the Earth's hum was a uh, may have been may have you know, been a part of it. And that is, that is just, uh, the hum is, is the action created um, by, if you look at the earth as a, um, like an electromagnetic motor or something like that, where you have, you know, a, a, a two objects rot rotating against each other and that tension between them and the the nature of the energy that's created uh, it creates a sound 
And, uh, but then again, you have also the function of tides, the moon as it uh, orbits has a, huge, has a huge influence on the earth and uh, is actually integral to the, the dynamics uh, of the earth. And uh, is, you know, that, that's a part, that's a part of it too. Uh, and everything is related. So human resonance, absolutely. Uh, <clears throat> and, uh, you know, can you actually affect the human resonance by, by running these, these pyramids or firing them up again? Uh, those, are, those are all questions I don't know the answers to right now. Um, yeah, and uh, if uh, if you are interested, actually, there is also great research from Russian uh, scientist uh, uh, Vladimir Yashkardin, uh, which we did study uh, quite extensively. And he is also like there are similar um, uh, functions described in what uh, you are showing on your graphics and in uh, in the book. Uh, but he's thinking that this uh, is more like a vibroacoustic generator, and he did also all the calculations that uh, how. Uh, the um how it was used and if i mean at some later point uh, uh, at another time maybe we, you would like i can explain because it's only in russian i can explain uh, what we understood from the uh, from his findings yeah yeah well i'd certainly like i mean i know that um, the uh, the russians are probably further ahead in their uh, pyramid researches than uh, we are in the west because they are more open to uh, entertaining these these ideas, uh, there seems to be a, a wall of resistance in uh, academia here uh, towards these ideas. But uh, hopefully that will change. Uh, <clears throat> but you know, as far as my my overview, it's more of I, I would say I'm more of a mechanic, in that I'm trying to figure out how this machine works, and uh, and you know, to actually recreate it, I would have to employ, you know, physicists and uh, uh, computer engineers and, you know, acoustic engineers, those who uh, understand the science and the physics at a higher level. Uh, but, you know, I'm just like, explain, hey, this is a machine and this is, you know, how I think it's going, how I think it works. But, uh, so yeah. <clears throat> Just a sharing of ideas uh, on, on a lot of things in my uh, travels in Egypt. I, I always put myself, I, I consider myself to be a, a more like a, a bell ringer, you know. Um, and I go as a tourist um, and I make uh, observations and, you know, and I report on my observations and they, they seem to catch on. Uh, <clears throat> and so that seems to work for me. But uh, I don't pretend to be anything, anything more than what I am. Uh, this is the photograph that I took in 1986 of the opening in the north wall and the south wall in the King's Chamber. And th these are the dimensions of the, the, the what I call a uh, waveguide. And then, as you can see in in the north in the south wall, you have a feature that looks like a microwave horn antenna. So, uh, very, very significant, I think. And those, are, yeah, I actually took colored photographs of them. It's the uh, south, 
top wall. And that's it today with the uh, the shaft installed. And as you can see, uh, probably would not have come up with that concept uh, if that shaft, that fan had been installed in 1986 when I first went there. And that's the uh, northern shaft. Tom Danley also um, reported in his uh, on his uh, research that he had detected that the floor uh, was also uh, suspended on what he considered to be like nodes or like an egg crate curtain or something like that. And uh, the features of this this uh, chamber, the the way that it was constructed. Uh, increased the uh, the resonance factor of it, so it, it, there was very very there would be very little damping uh, if uh, uh, to any vibration that was uh, passing through the granite, and you can see that in the floor, but also the walls were uh, uh, built with within the 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 core masonry of the Great Pyramid. And the floor itself was not, uh, the walls were not uh, built on top of the floor. The walls, the floor was built inside the space. So there was no uh, pushing down or damping of the space uh, because that would uh, create a, a dead spot in the corners if, if you had that. And so the whole objective in my opinion was to create a, uh, a structure that uh, was free, was uh, where all dampening was uh, reduced to a minimum. And uh, as you can see in the the antechamber, I actually uh, uh, created a, a graphic showing what I consider to be the uh, the filters. Uh, where the sound coming through would uh, actually pass uh, through that and filter out extraneous frequencies. Next to it is the uh, the granite beams above uh, are, uh, are are actually cut square and straight on three sides: the underside. On uh, two other sides, but the top part of them uh, is rough, and some of them even have holes bored into them. And so, the uh, what I propose in the Giza power plants is that, that that was done to actually tune those granite beams to a specific frequency, so that they would um, they would resonate in harmony with the uh, energy uh, coming through. Uh, from the Grand Gallery and also through the, the pyramid itself, they would resonate uh, at a particular frequency. Yeah, I mean, they look a lot like sound lenses with an angle deflector, like aiming the waves down to the uh, right. sarcophagus, uh, which is a resonator. Yeah, and we can calculate also its internal frequency, uh, which is open, uh, is 98 hertz and 109 uh, 96, I guess, uh, uh, if it's closed. Yeah. I, I When I was younger, I would have gone up there, but not today, I don't think. 
it's a uh, uh, yeah but the the whole the whole uh, mystery of the of, you know those spaces uh, I found to be very interesting and then also some of the early explorers uh, they had discovered this uh, black substance in uh, in some of the uh, the the openings the immediate openings like in the the opening right above the king's chamber they found this black powder that they uh, they assumed it was what they call exuvia which is the uh, cast off uh, uh, shells and skins of insects uh, i proposed that it was actually uh, a material that had shaken off um, the uh, the limestone bedrock um, and had become cooked in, uh, as it sus was suspended in the air when the explosion happened and that uh, then it finally deposited on the top of the beans so that was my uh, interpretation of that so this black powder you're saying it's basically the result of this uh, chemical reaction uh, that uh, was taking place uh, in the power plant or this is the result of this um, uh, explosion that was by accident uh, that happened by accident yes, the power plant Yes, I mean, uh, I think both may be possible. Um, <clears throat> I had I had selected the uh, the explosion as being uh, as being the cause, uh, um, but was it a, a result of the pyramid functioning for over a long period of time? That is uh, another good question to ask. I think I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. So here we have uh, the uh, the concept of the Great Pyramid being a huge musical instrument, and and uh, uh, except it has a, a louder voice, you know, than any other instrument that I think we have created. But uh, it has all, you know, it's a comprehensive and uh, all-inclusive view that uh, brings into the theory explanations for all the features within the Great Pyramid. Grand Gallery and uh, you can see, oh, we talked about the acoustic uh, brilliance that you see there. But then, you know, the similarities that you have between the Grand Gallery and uh, other concert halls with some of the uh, geometries that are used. And, and then there was a, uh, <clears throat> an interesting question that you asked, uh, Olga, about the uh, trial passages, or I think you called them something else, test corridors. Uh, and, you know, we talked earlier about what process you, you would follow to actually uh, recreate the Great Pyramid and build another one. Well, one of the things that we would probably do before closing everything up, we would test the equipment uh, to make sure that uh, everything was functioning properly. Uh, we'd, uh, we'd actually build the, the, the King's Chamber 
in a, in a place, a remote place, or somewhere outside the, the, the structure, uh, and also uh, the uh, the resonators in the grand gallery to make sure that everything was functioning, and then we would activate and introduce the hydrogen, maybe a different way. And so what we find on the east side of the Great Pyramid are these trial passages, and the uh, and they ha have similar features <coughs> to what you find in the lower parts of the the King of the uh, the Great Pyramid. You have a, a horizontal passage. Uh, the start of a horizontal passage. You have the start of the lower part of the uh, Grand Gallery, and and then the descending passage. Now, one of the interesting things that I would like to note is that, you know, when we uh, when we install machinery in in a plant, uh, a lot of times in a manufacturing uh, factory. Um, a lot of times the machinery is uh, inserted into uh, an excavation or a pit. So you would uh, actually prepare uh, a place for the lower parts of the, uh, of the machine to, uh, to sit. Um, this happens all the time, um, all the time. And similarly, this could be just the lower parts of the uh, outside installation where they uh, decided to dig down rather than build up, um, and I should imagine that they had a you know all of this and all of these uh, technologies were tested previously, without being inside the mass of the Great Pyramid, uh, and that it, it was held within a within a structure, so that uh, you know you wouldn't see it from the outside, you wouldn't see what was going on, but. Uh, all of the uh, elements within the Great Pyramid were tested and made sure uh, that they would function when finally installed. So that's the trial passages. Do you have any uh, questions about that? Those were discovered by William Flinders Petrie and uh, he, he took measurements of them too. Interestingly, and uh, I just want to close with uh, with the the uh, buzz that's going around the the pyramids now in, in Egypt, uh, this is a scam pyramid mission, and it raises a huge question in my mind. Uh, you have a, a a mission that has the full authority of the uh, the Arab Republic of Egypt uh, Ministry of Antiquities the HIP Institute, the Faculty of Engineering of Cairo University. And, uh, <clears throat> and uh, when I visited there in 2019, I have another research partner. Uh, his name is Eric Wilson. He's a, uh, an aerospace engineer. And he, uh, we were actually on the Nile and he found out about the, <laughs> he found out about the, uh, uh, a concert that was going on uh, at, the, at the Great Pyramid and bought tickets to it. But he got friendly with the, the Scam Pyramid team and, uh, and was actually recruited to help them uh, repair some of their equipment. Anyway, uh, the big question and, uh, you know, the intrigue that I have is that 
supposedly they're looking for the uh, uh, the tomb or the space where Khufu was buried, and and in order to do that, they employed or they enlisted the help of the French Alternative Energy, uh, Japan High Energy Physics Research, uh, a University in Japan, and in, in uh, Canada. Uh, French Computer Science, uh, Center for Scientific Research in France. All of these really uh, high, heavy hitters are really high quality uh, research labs. I find that the research into the discovery of Khufu's tomb uh, <clears throat> in the Great Pyramid makes me question. I think they're looking for something else. Uh, but that is the story that they have to tell. And yeah, yeah, Dassault Systems. Uh, I mean, a lot of these, a lot of companies who are stakeholders in this research. And, you know, stakeholders have a right to uh, receive the results of the research. But what they did find with their uh, muonography, they uh, are actually uh, using muon detection plates throughout the pyramid to determine if, you know, you know, to discover where voids may exist within the, within the Great Pyramid. And <clears throat> they found a void that is just uh, close to the northern shaft in the, the King's Chamber. Um, and that's interesting to me. Uh, and I, of course, I, I got a lot of uh, questions. Well, what do you think of that? Does that fit into your uh, into your your view or your theory on the Great Pyramids, and and I, I said, well, I really don't have an answer for that yet because it's very. I mean, you know, the resolution of the images is uh, very low, uh, without actual uh, clear dimensions or at least a clear photograph of what that void may be in terms of its shape, if it, is it on an angle or is it horizontal to the ground? Uh, <clears throat> how close to the northern shaft is it? There's a lot of unanswered questions, but uh, it, does it have anything to do with the acoustics of the Great Pyramid? And, and as I was uh, pondering this, uh, I got a call from my, my friend Eric. Um, and uh, he told me that he, he knew what it was. <laughs> so uh, uh, he uh, indicated that it really fit very well into the Giza power plant theory. And that will be included in my next book. But it needs to be worked out a little more thoroughly before going public with it. It's just a teaser. I hope you don't mind. I think I'm almost to the close. Uh, I think I went long, right? Uh, we would like to thank you so much for this uh, detailed uh, explanation of uh, the power plant, uh, how it works. We just would like to summarize, summarize some points uh, and it will allow us also to prepare for the second uh, session with you. Um, basically, you was using uh, reverse engineering to see how the power plant uh, works. Also you used uh, acoustic modeling. So you was uh, measuring the 
acoustics of uh, Grand Gallery. And uh, from your point of view, you told us that it's a um, uh, geomechanical plant. So it was uh, transforming the um, uh, mechanical energy to electromagnetic energy. And uh, the only question may be uh, how, it, how it starts to function. Uh, I mean, this, um, because you know, there are um, some, I call it um, uh, telurgical uh, um, flows that are emanating from the earth. So this is basically uh, can be used as a starting point, uh, how it functions or uh, like the starting point, how to, uh, to make this initial impetus from the earth. What is it from your point of view? Yes, well, the, uh, to, assuming that you worked out all the other details and you actually built the device, uh, how do you turn it on? Is that, is that your question? Uh, so how, how do you turn it on? Um, the control mechanisms are actually uh, accessible from the outside. And, um, and you turn it on by um, applying a force, a sharp force, to the roof of the subterranean chamber. And, and that, that force is then uh, carried through the pyramid, but it's also uh, what connects it acoustically to the earth. So you have a, like a feedback net mechanism between the two. Um, <clears throat> and there is some recent research I really can't disclose right now, but it's in one of our labs uh, where a machine was built uh, with dimensions that approximate relationships, correspondences that approximate the Great Pyramid. And uh, it was shown that it works if you just wrap it uh, at one part of it with a hammer and it will function and just continue to operate. So it may not be a continuous thing that you need to do, uh, but the uh, but the, the applied force in the, in the sub-chamber, that's what makes it all work. Other, uh, <clears throat> uh, another researcher, John Cadman, believes that it's a hydraulic uh, pulse that uh, causes things to work. And uh, I've, uh, I've discussed it with him. I, I, he built a, uh, a replica of the subterranean chamber and demonstrated how it can work as a, uh, a pulse generator. And so that's very interesting research. Um, you know, it's a, <laughs> uh, there may be other ways to be able to do it, but they, uh, you know, the question is, is how do you turn it on? How do you control it? And the, uh, so you turn the key uh, in your car and, and start your engine and then you control it with your, the gas pedal and your brake. And, you know, <laughs> uh, so, those <laughs> so those controls, uh, you'd like to know that you would be able to control what's going on inside the, uh, inside the, the, the Great Pyramid as it's, as it's functioning. To make you know to make sure that it's not uh, out of control, and so there is uh, you could do that acoustically uh, because it it is uh, a very sensitive instrument, and so it functions depending on 
uh, uh, harmonics and the, you know, the purity of a signal. Uh, and you can control that by introducing uh, out of phase signals into that space that would uh, reduce the power. Uh, uh, but ultimately you would want to uh, keep the power uh, at a, as high a level as possible, I would assume. But there is a point where you would reduce the power so much or the acoustic energy so much that uh, it would actually shut down, the process would, uh, would cease. Um, and then of course, you know, with the um, the function of the, the Queen's Chamber and the creation of gases. Um, the control there would be to just let the uh, let the the shafts drain of the of the chemical. They would just drain out into into the uh, Queen's Chamber, and you wouldn't replenish them. Yeah. So uh, basically, uh, we can see that uh, it is uh, a complex mechanical device and uh, there are the result of evidence that uh, there are lenses that control uh, like the uh, feedback loop mechanism and right. of course as every even electronic generator you need to do the initial click uh, and then maintain and supplement the energy losses that are needed for uh, the vibration so that the resonator keeps vibrating so it right. is kind of the mechanism and when you open uh, the plug, which you can see at the one of the entrances, like a huge granite plug, right. then the energy flow supplementing the generator just stops, right? something like this. And uh, yeah. I think it's very interesting. It's uh, amazing that there are such great theories proven by also your experience in uh, engineering. And uh, you've obviously uh, connected with a lot of people and uh, specialists in their own fields and, you know, connecting the dots together. And this really inspires us to uh, continue uh, also uh, researching and asking questions and talk to great people like yourself. Well, I really appreciate it. And, you know, I, 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 that, that, is, that is my whole objective. And it has been my dream that, um, you know, pe people would actually, uh, see some merit in it and, and take the research further, be inspired enough to take it further than I could. Um, because I, I don't have the resources to build a, a pyramid. Uh, but if I could inspire somebody who has some political clout or some political uh, influence to, you know, to be able to uh, study it further, then that, that's mission accomplished for me. Um, so thank you. I, I really appreciate your interest in it and your comments. Thanks. Yeah, sure. And uh, maybe just a small uh, idea about the activation is there's also an understanding that um, the uh, pyramids as a device, uh, not only a standalone pyramid, but the whole, let's say, pyramidal complex all over the world could also be activated. Uh, by uh, so-called operators, which is people uh, who are placed in the pyramids. So uh, there is an understanding that uh, a, let's say, spiritual free uh, person who is controlling uh, the thoughts and, and stuff like that 
is a, is really able to uh, give this impulse uh, for all of this complex uh, to be activated. So uh, we also think that uh, it's worth of uh, considering uh, uh, this aspect and hopefully we'll be able to prove it in the creative society that uh, we are uh, aiming at. I think, uh, yes, I mean, there are some very forward thinkers that uh, um, I've, I've heard about that, uh, you know, the, uh, the human uh, component of machine operation, or you know, they're actually having the human uh, become a part, more a part of how uh, a system functions, uh, but to do it in a, um, a harmonic and more spiritual way. So you have to have somebody who is uh, uh, a little, a little bit more talented or more gifted in terms of their ability to use their minds and uh, and what other you know qualities that they may have um, and in, uh, to actually interact with with machines and, uh, and and make them function and they may be essential to the function of a machine in other words uh, if you have not been trained or you're not sufficiently evolved, then this machine is not going to work for you. <laughs> uh, that would be uh, that would be quite something, wouldn't it? Yeah, but also what uh, we are aware that uh, this brings um, a lot of responsibility because uh, with uh, issuing such a great amount of force uh, we'll need to kind of uh, define how this force is going to be used so this is uh, this is a big responsibility for the for the people and um, uh, in this uh, let's say um, um, society where, where we live in uh, today not sure how this would um, what impact this could have yeah, um, and I, I think I don't see, <clears throat> I mean, when you talk about um, the perfect society, how you want it, you know, how, how you, you envision it to function. Um, uh, if you look in history, you, there are people who have, you know, kind of uh, secluded themselves away from, you know, the common flow of society. They create uh, communes and uh, ashrams or, you know, they have uh, these uh, new frontier closed kind of communities where only similar minded uh, people uh, are, are accepted into, into their group. Um, and I, I've known a few of them, but you know, the uh, Paramahansa Yogananda, he had ashrams in, uh, in, San Fran in, in uh, Sacramento, California, near the Fernando village. And there was a uh, community in Northern Illinois called Stell. And they, 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 it was populated with uh, people who, you know, were uh, not happy with the way the rest of the world functioned and they wanted to be away from you know the madness and and uh, and you know live in peace and live off the land 
So I, you know, there are there are those inclinations in everybody to uh, to improve the world in some way. Um, Marik actually brought us to very important uh, topic, uh, uh, giving this um, uh, topic of um, operators of the pyramids. Uh, so uh, we are now also um, implementing uh, another project that is a global one. It's called Creative Society. And uh, as you mentioned yourself in the beginning of our conversation that uh, you're also thinking about but you call it a uh, generation revolution. So uh, we see that all the scientists from time to time are, are coming to this understanding that something needs to be changed, that something, uh, you know, in order to develop science in the way that it will serve humanity, we need also to create conditions uh, that uh, science will be serving humanity. And uh, Creative Society project was implemented uh, also on the platform of a larger international public movement and um, now, Alexei will tell us more about it. Um, yeah. Okay. Yes, I mean, uh, you know, we um, we were making uh, social studies, actually asking people on the streets, uh, online, like we do today. And uh, we asked a lot of people, like uh, literally, uh, I guess, uh, millions of people were asked, uh, what is the world uh, they would like to live in? And uh, they we compiled from their uh, responses, eight foundations of the creative society. And the first and the most important one is the human life. Because if we build everything in a way so that it protects the life of every human being, I mean, not a particular group, <laughs> not as some uh, people who have a certain mindset or ideas, no, every human being, uh, then also, of course, science will be serving only the development and the betterment of the human society, our lives, and uh, not to kill each other. I mean, not, not creating weapons of mass destruction or any kind of weapons. And in this way, we would not have also uh, projects that a lot of universities come together to scan the pyramids looking for the tomb when, I mean, any, uh, anyone looking at uh, this thing understands it was not a tomb. And there was never a tomb inside the pyramid. <laughs> and uh, obviously this project is uh, somehow uh, of a public utility, but uh, there's, uh, the public did not vote for this. And if there were really um, the will to create a better place for everyone, then the questions of free energy, which uh, the pyramidal complex obviously generated would be one of the first ones to solve, right? And, and to your point, I have uh, actually, I, I wrote a foreword to uh, one book uh, called uh, The Spiritual Technologies of Ancient Egypt by Edward uh, Malkowski. And in my foreword, I, I, I pleaded, uh, you know, to, with uh, engineers to um, <clears throat> design their products that, uh, in a way, that uh, are more harmonious with the, the, the human body uh, and mind uh, and the frequencies of, of our DNA. So, it, you know, the, our, our systems, our engineering systems are built on, on, on frequency. It's kind of like, you know, you go, you come to America and the rotation of a, um, a turbine for the generation of electricity is uh, 60 hertz, 
and in the uh, in Egypt uh, you go it's 50 hertz you know and uh, and so when you when they design a refrigerator that you're going to have uh, humming in the background in your kitchen uh, uh, the frequency that it, it emits can be either harmonious or it, it can be beneficial to the human body or, or otherwise uh, you know the the frequencies of the, the noises our acoustic environment could be improved with the engineering um, and and so you know to have engineers actually focus on that uh, and to become well versed in uh, in DNA frequencies and uh, you know there is a a woman who contacted me, her name is Susan Alexander, and she had worked with a uh, biologist uh, who had actually mapped the frequencies of human DNA. And uh, she had uh, uh, composed music based on those frequencies, obviously at a you know, much lower frequency because DNA resonates at a much higher frequency. And so she's written some pretty amazing pieces just using the frequencies of uh, human DNA. So it would re resonate with, uh, with people. And F sharp and uh, C sharp uh, figured very strongly within those frequencies. And that's why she connected with me when she read my book, because she read about the F sharp chord in the, in the King's Chamber. This is very interesting. This is very interesting. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, <clears throat> uh, Christopher, I would like to thank you for today's interview. Before we finish, uh, <clears throat> I would also like to announce that uh, on January the 13th, we will have our following uh, Kaleidoscope of Fact event. And uh, here we, we would like to welcome you also to attend of course. And uh, <clears throat> we would also be grateful uh, if you uh, agreed to join uh, our second part of the Kaleidoscope of, of Facts uh, on Pyramids that will come uh, sometime in spring this year. And uh, we are really, really, really honored uh, with uh, the fact that you have dedicated your precious time uh, to interview and we really appreciate uh, all of your findings and uh, mainly your human uh, mainly your human approach and um, maybe someone else would like to express some thoughts before we finish as well. well thank you very much I appreciate that thanks. Yes I think such uh, discussions uh, are bringing us uh, I mean all the people who are involved uh, all also in viewing us uh, to final understanding what actually the pyramids uh, were used for. So unless we uh, uh, actually make a step to uh, to to discuss and to uh, to see how it works, we will never be able to to understand this. So the more scientists we are bringing uh, together, the more hypotheses we are considering. The closer we are to this uh, understanding, what is this? These beautiful structures that ancient uh, left to us. It's a very worthy mission, very important mission. So I uh, support you uh, completely and uh, I'm looking forward to the next uh, roundtable discussion.
Thank you, Christopher. Thank you so much. Thank you very much, Christopher. Thank you so much. Bye-bye, everyone. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you.